So here we are in Genesis chapter uh, 12, 13, and 14. Um, if you have been with us at all, you know that we are in a series, really for most of 2022, as we're journeying through uh, the book of Genesis. Here we are in part two. Here we are in week two of part two. Uh, and part two is really focusing on the life of Abram. He's not yet Abraham. He will be uh, come next week, but he's still Abram as we know it. And hopefully what I hope that you would see today is that there is beauty in living from blessing, living from a place of blessing. We're going to break out for us in three different stories that Abram just is living, what it looks like to live for blessing, what it looks like to live from blessing, and then we're going to break down what it means to live with blessing. Those are words that like you may not think make a big difference, but it's going to make a significant difference in your life, I pray, at the end of today. So we're going to break down these three episodes the way that they taught us in seminary. The way they taught us in seminary was, um, uh, well, this is what they say in seminary, exegetical, theological, applicational, or practical. And so you go, okay, well, that's a lot of Yule's words. And what does it really mean? Then, always, now. Just think about it, tan. Like, this is how we break down sermons every week is, what did it mean for them then? What was true then? What's true always? What's true now? We're going to do that three times in three of these episodes when we talk about living for faith, for blessing, from blessing, and with blessing. Why this idea of blessing? Well, if you remember last week, we saw God's posture in Genesis 12, the last part of 2, the first part of verse 3, and it said, I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. To find a God that has a disposition of blessing and not payment or recompense should blow your mind. It would have blown their mind, it should blow our minds as well. I don't know how many conversations you have with lost people or with just nominal believers, people that are in a church but don't follow Jesus. Those are two different things, by the way. I don't know how many conversations you have with people uh, that just simply don't acknowledge the truth of Jesus and the significance of Christianity, but a lot of times it just kind of just, everything kind of comes to the same level where Christianity is just the same as everybody else. They, you think you have the truth, they also think they have the truth. You think you have the way, they also say that they have the way. So really, what's the difference anyways? After all, it's just a bunch of moral good lessons. It is not a bunch of moral good lessons. Not just a bunch of moral good lessons. And we'll, we'll work through some morality through all this, but ultimately, we're going to point, hopefully, the scriptures will point us to King Jesus Ultimately, that's what sets us apart from everything else is that our God, as, as Moses would write throughout Genesis, Genesis 1 all the way through the end, that our God is the one that reigns above high and supreme over all. That's our hope, and that's really the revolutionary message of this God who blesses, has a posture to bless people. I want us to think about that as we go through this today. I don't know about you, but it has been said that we, my generation, Gen X, I know this is like the, the, the random, uh, you know, generation in between generations, but Gen X, right, Generation X, which has not been made a whole lot of here late recently, but it has been said that Generation X is a generation without fathers. It's a generation, especially of fathers, who did not bless us. And so 
If you're millennial, you're right there. If you're, if you're Gen Z, hopefully Gen X is trying to correct some things. Um, but like that's kind of where, some, where we were and where we uh, were growing up, right? We didn't have fathers. They chose their own way, and they, a generation did not bless their children. Instead, they got caught up in following the American dream, pursuit of happiness, right? And all of a sudden, we are left then with, and I don't know if you felt this way, kind of figuring it out on your own. You, you, you start to, like, what does it mean to be a parent? I don't know. What does it mean to be married? I don't know. I didn't see that. What does it mean to bless your children? I have no clue. Got to figure it out. Fly, though, because there's a lack of generational blessing. They got caught up in chasing something else. I don't know about you, but I like to watch Wheel of Fortune, as I've said before. And on Wheel of Fortune, they have Jimmy Buffett Week. Have you seen this on Wheel of Fortune? Jimmy Buffett Week is if you, if you and usually it's usually all a little bit the baby boomer generation. Those are the, those are the contestants on, on, on Margaritaville Week. And so, and so those, the baby boomers, why is it appealing to them? Because they could land on a space where they could win a house in Margaritaville. And what is Margaritaville? But it's in Florida. Of course it is. It's where you want to retire. And they have events and activities. It's the Dell web on steroids in Florida if you want it, because that's the American dream. That's what we're selling people. You just keep playing in adolescence until you die. But there's something greater to be had, as Psalm 145 absolutely states, that would we be a people, as we grow, I mean, last week I told y'all, we're the older people in our church, you're it. I'm it. I'm talking to myself now. Will we be a generation? If the generation that went before us didn't, get, didn't, didn't devote themselves to this, will then my generation and your generation coming after me, will we devote ourselves to what Psalm 145 says, ultimately this? Like, will we be a people that tell of God's power, that tell of God's mighty deeds and his holy, magnificent splendor, as Psalm 145 says, and it says, from one generation to another. We'll be caught up in that story or in something not terrible, but it's just not the gospel. It's not the kingdom. So here we are as really discovering this God who has blessed Abram in a way that we had only longed for. And you know what? You know what we find in Abram's life is that he doesn't quite know what to do with this thing called blessing. That's what we find. And so all of a sudden you see in Abram's first episode a man who is living to manipulate, to live for God's blessing. It's something that he has been pronounced on him, but it hasn't really settled into his soul yet. And so he is presented with this problem. That there's a famine in the land in Genesis 12, 10, right? It was a severe famine. Moses, the writer of Genesis, is trying to tell us, man, he had to go. And yet, did he? What we're going to find out is that God never told him to leave the promised land. He had given him the promised land, and yet he ventures outside of that space and goes down to Egypt. And when he goes to Egypt, he comes up with this crazy concoction of a plan. And if you're married and you get away with this, I, I, we need to talk about marriage counseling, ultimately. I mean, that's what it comes down to. But Abram goes into Egypt and he says, hey, babe, you are fine. Let's just put it down. Okay, you hot. You are, you are, my, you are my jam. Yes, you're 65, but everybody knows who you are. Okay, so look, here's the deal. We're going to go down to Egypt and look, they're going to kill me if they see you looking like this. Okay, and you can't hide your beauty. And they're going to kill me 
right? If they see you in all your beauty. So let's do this little numbers. Don't put on more clothes. Don't hide yourself and stow away. No, no. What we want you to actually do is we want to emphasize a half-truth. Sarai was Abram's half-sister. He's not exactly lying here. He's just not emphasizing the whole truth. And so he goes down into Egypt and he says, hey, babe, if you could just tell them that you're my sister, forget about the whole wife thing for a little bit, and they'll spare me, right? I'm the one that has God's blessing. We think you were included, but I'm the one that has God's blessing. And in order for me to continue to to do the things that God wants us to do, we have to really prioritize my life, your life, we'll see. But if you could just say that you're my sister, that'd be great. And so she goes along with this idea. I don't know about your marriage, but this is not happening in my marriage. But for Abram and Sarai, this was a good idea. They go down to Egypt, and of course, they, they spread this half-truth. And what happens? Sarai gets taken, brought into Pharaoh's household. Many people think this is uh, immediately not good, that he, he knows her in the biblical sense. Uh, but I don't know that the text can go that far. Instead, what we do think is that Sarah gets taken into Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's harem, where it could have been, it may not have been an immediate know you in the biblical sense, but it was certainly on the way to that. If they would have stayed in Egypt, at least within the next year, that would have happened. And they would have had to dealt with some things. Instead, what happens? God repays and puts a curse on Pharaoh puts a plague on Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh freaks out. He's like, why did you tell me? She's your wife, clearly your wife. And he sends them out. That's the great problem that's being presented to us this first episode of, of, of Abram. And what is he doing? He doesn't quite grasp the idea that God has blessed them in a significant way that he doesn't have to manipulate He doesn't have to grasp at straws and try to figure out how he has to act a certain way in order to keep God's blessing. He's just just kind of grabbing the air, trying to figure out how to keep something that God has already said, I will not change my mind on this. You have my blessing. You didn't earn it. Therefore, you can't lose it. Thank God for that. So Abram and Sarai start this slippery slope of hearing God's blessing And again, trying to keep or achieve what God has promised through manipulation. That's the then. The always part of this is what's always true is this. If we try to manipulate God, right? If we try to manipulate God, we falsely think that God works within an an economy or a system of works. If God is a God of blessing, then I've got to do certain things in order to get that blessing if we're living for blessing. But as we'll see in just a moment, if we live from blessing, then I don't have to do things to get stuff that's already been given to me. Now it changes how I'm going to live. It's a totally different perspective, but they are not yet there in this first episode after God has blessed them richly. See, if God was a God of payment, if he was stuck in a system of works, wouldn't you expect for Abram to be afflicted with the plague? Of course you would. He's the one that was deceitful. He's the one that messed up. And yet God doesn't put the plague on Abram and his wife. He puts the plague on Pharaoh. Pharaoh did nothing wrong, it seems. And yet it was Abram that escapes the plague and and, and God working all of this out so that Abram would get back on track into the promised land. And of course, that's what we see in the second episode. 
So that's the always, right? The good news here is that God will prove faithful to preserve his promise of blessing to his people even when his people are faithless. 2 Timothy 2 says that even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he will not deny himself. It doesn't matter if you're faithful or faithless. He will remain faithful to you. Will you experience joy if you're faithful to him? Absolutely. Will you experience some, some, some depression and some downness and some, some consequences of sin that you will never be able to measure before you run into sin? Absolutely. That doesn't mean God's blessing has been removed. It means that you have moved away from God's blessing. And so there's this, this principle here that God is rescuing us from living for blessings. So some questions as we apply it in every episode here, right? Is your obedience marked with manipulation or with trust? Is your obedience, do you parent? Do you, do you bear with your spouse in an understanding way? Do you submit to your husband? Do you lead your wife? Do you work? Do you live? Do you give all that you have as a means to an end, just to get the life that you want? Or is it a demonstration of deep trust in the one who has already called you blessed as a child of Abram? As I mentioned, Abram's journey into Egypt meant he left the promised land for the lush waters of the Nile in the midst of a famine. And yet the question remains for us to apply in times of spiritual drought in your life, are you going to be content with God in the midst of a famine or are you going to go try and find provision outside of God's promises? This is at the heart of every sin. Will I trust God while I feel nothing? Or will I step outside of the provision that God has promised me in order to get something more immediate? There may be a level of trust that God is inviting you into today to continue to walk through a famine, a desert place while trusting his provision, which may not be immediate, but it is according to God's character, timing, and process. Are you short-circuiting that deepening of your faith? That's what it looks like, I think, for us as we ask questions, am I living for blessing to achieve something according to works or from Blessing, And that's where we'll go with our second episode, right? Living from blessing is far more beautiful. If you found it in Genesis chapter 13 now, where Abram and Lot are kicked out of Egypt, they are then given all sorts of riches, whether it be female servants or male servants, donkeys and camels, all sorts of things. And don't start to think that that doesn't matter. Because most people will think that a certain female servant that Egypt gave Abram during this time, her name was Hagar, and she's going to show up in a few weeks. We think that she came from this little episode of going into Egypt, picking up female servants along the way, and then heading out. All is not well in the household of Abram, and it will show itself eventually, but living from blessing. After being kicked out of Egypt with all sorts of riches, what happens with riches? The notorious B.I.G. says, mo money, mo problems. Right? You know the great theologian. 
Mo money, mo problems. They get kicked out of Egypt, and what happens? The herdsmen start fighting over the resources in the land. That all of a sudden, there's that famine that's still going on. Now they're back in the promised land, and really, the land cannot support all of the people and all of the animals that they now have been given by Egypt. And familial conflict and limited resources produce a situation where Abram was met with a choice. I don't know if you've got family conflict. I don't know if you have limited resources that you feel like the land is not yet fertile enough to produce my life. But this was his choice. Will I live for blessing? To gain and achieve and keep something, which is exhausting. It's just a treadmill going nowhere. Will I live for blessing or will I live from blessing? You see, Abram learned something along the way as he, maybe it was a conversation with Sarai on the way out of Egypt going, hey, never do that to me again. And yet he does. We'll keep reading in the scriptures. But Abram is the true father of our faith for a reason. Yes, he failed along the way. And so we'll get challenged or we get encouraged by that. But he eventually starts to figure some, some things out, doesn't he? Right here in this second episode, we see that Abram could have manipulated the situation. But he, something happened in him. And he no longer tries to control the outcome, and instead he has a deeper trust now living from a point in a position of blessing and going, hey, you know what? The land can't, can't hold both of us a lot. So look, here's the deal. Why don't you pick your first choice of the land? If you want the promised land, it's yours. Everything to the left, you can have. You can look out to the right, and you can have that too. I submit to you, Lot. That is a, a position and a posture that is far different than the first part of this sermon. He was, he was there, he was manipulating, he was trying to figure out the end game, he was moving chess pieces on the board, and now all of a sudden, the chess pieces are laid over, he has surrendered to God's blessing and his will, and he says, Lot, you take whatever you think you need. And of course, Lot sees, he says, he looks with his eyes um, what does it say right here, right? He lifted up his eyes for the lush Jordan Valley and he chose for himself, a.k.a. he could have cared less what Abram got. He chose for himself the lush valley of the Jordan because it looked beautiful to him. And Abram trusted God with his outcome and God reiterated his blessing. If you read with me, Genesis 13, 14 through 18. Notice the wordplay here. As Lot looked up, Right? He chose for himself. He saw it with his eyes. Now God says this in Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now you lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see shall be yours, Simba. It's what it makes me think of. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring Forever, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. He is just, he's reiterating blessing here because now he's living from a different posture. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled the oaks of Mamre. What did she say? How did you correctly pronounce it? I'm gonna go with Mamre, which is not correct. I think that's from He-Man or something, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord, again, showing his worship and his dedication to his king. That's what's going on here in this beautiful 
passage that we start to learn some things that if we live, the beauty of living from God's blessing means you don't have to grasp at straws or think that this is the last time that God's going to provide for you. Instead, you live open-handedly with a generous disposition because you're not an orphan. You now have a dad who provides for you. And he gives you exactly what you need in exactly the right time. You see, Abram did not give in to the lie that God's blessing meant that he had to control the outcome anymore. Rather, he had a deeper trust that God has what he says he has and can do what he says he can do. He has what he says he has. Genesis 50 says that he owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. Do you believe that in your life? Do you believe, truly believe in your life that God owns everything? That if you needed more, truly needed more, that your God who is rich in mercy and has a disposition of blessing would withhold it from you if it wasn't good for you. Therefore, if he is withholding from you, it must be good for you. Do we really believe that, that he truly owns everything? I'm going to tell you a story in my own life this week. If you're not a partner of our church, welcome to a partner-only meeting. I'm going to invite you in. Um, we have been looking at land for somewhat, uh, well, forever. But I've been having conversations with a landowner for about four years. And this week I got an email that was not awesome. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, I thought you were giving this to us. And maybe you're not. And maybe he is. I don't know. We'll just see. Um, there's just complications, always complications. Um, and so I don't know that I believed Genesis 50.10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand. I don't know that in those moments, this just in my heart this week, that I believe that you own everything. And who cares who the owner is right now? Because we're just a steward of things for 80 years. And then someone else gets to steward it for the next 80 years. And then someone else and someone else and someone else. And by the second time that happens, they don't even remember your name. Unless you put it on a building somewhere. And even then, it's probably removed for the Fertitas. Like that's usually that's going to go. Because there's buying everything. Oh, that's Fertitta Center now. Oh, that's a Fertitta uh, Square. That's the Fertitta Tower. We're going to Fertitta everything. Right? Because riches do that to us. But I don't know that I would just bought into and have believed wholeheartedly that God owns everything. I want to start manipulating. I want to start living for an end instead of living from a posture that, man, God, if you, you're sovereign. Do I trust you? I don't know. Do I trust you? So maybe God has some other plans that are yet to be revealed in his infinite wisdom. He may be protecting us, and I don't know if I'm okay with that. But let my plan work out. Maybe I'm alone. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So not only does he own everything, but he can work and move whoever's heart needs to be moved like a stream including mine, including whatever landowner you have, including whatever boss that you have, including whatever authority that you have to submit to, that you go, oh, 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 <laughs> which might be me, I don't know. But like, do we, do we have that kind of trust? That he owns everything and controls everything. Abram is starting to develop this, this posture of living from blessing. And so I would ask again, then, always, and now, now, our applicational questions here, do you find yourself grasping at possessions? Do you find yourself hovering over your children even though they're like 15? Do you find yourself just kind of making sure that everything happens just 
the way they are, with the promise of a new career, with the promise of even acceptance with your God. You see, then we become graspers and clingers. We possess things like orphans. No, you can't have any. Instead of living open-handed, trusting our Father's provision for us in His time according to however much He wants And instead, if we grasp, if we cling, if we start living for blessing, we will panic when what we have is threatened instead of allowing that threat to deepen our faith in our God. Abram's second episode here is a great example of living from the blessing that God has given us, showing us that we are possessors of no thing, only sacrificial and faithful stewards for a limited amount of time until it gets passed on to someone else. Living from blessing frees us from being, mo- from being movers of a chess pieces around to manipulate an outcome and releases us into living into our God-given place. Not as those who are in charge of anything, but are, the, but are those who are subject to the one who is in charge of everything. Will we be servants of this king or will we try to be king ourselves, this next episode that we're going to read about this guy named Melchizedek will cement for us our position, our lowly position. I know it feels like we own a lot. I know it feels like we can kind of determine our own fate, but instead, oh, our God King, our God reigns and rules, and that is far greater than us. All right, living for blessing, living from blessing. And now what do we do with God's blessing. Going back into the story, now we see that Abram, though Lot went his own way, and he went to go into the land of Sodom. And if you read back in 13, 13, it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They're going to come up later when we get to Genesis 19, but they're not here today. So we're just going to preview that and realize we know the ideas of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot chose that life. And when he went down... A great war broke out over these areas, and you had five kings against four. And I'm not going to go through their name. Instead, I'll just have Cassie come up and go through their names because she rehearsed it. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, there was a, there was a war that broke out. And what happened, um, ultimately, is that um, Lot became the spoil of war. He was taken away by the victors, who the Bible call the enemy. The enemy took Lot away as a spoil, and Abram sees this, and he goes, okay, man, well, my my kinsmen can't be taken. That's not going to work for me. So I've got 318 dudes here against four nations that just defeated five nations. The odds are stacked up against Abram here. He's got 318 men against a pretty powerful empire here, or at least four nations, right? He goes, he goes at night, he defeats them, and he takes all their possessions, he takes all of the people, and he goes back because now he's living from God's blessing. He's willing to risk it to get Lot back, right? And all of a sudden, we start to see some very mysterious things going on that we need to pay attention to. This guy named Melchizedek enters the scene, and of course, when Abram is returning from war and he's returning with his spoils, he's got a lot following him at this point. Two kings come out to meet Abram. First is the king of Sodom, and he had just lost everything in war, and he goes and meets Abram, and he's like, hey, I see that you have some of my people and my things here. How about this? You keep all the stuff. I want all the people. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone um, like 
the king of Sodom. But if you have, um, you start to get a little spidey sense. I was going to say spidey tingle, but that's awkward, but that's what they use in the, in the movies. A spidey sense that something's not right here. And, of course, it's the spirit, I think, speaking to Abram that something's not right with the king of Sodom. If, if we take anything from him, he's going to claim credit over everything that God's going to give us in the future. And so he says, no, thank you. I don't want your possessions, and I don't want your people. Take it. He could have. Think about it. God has blessed him. God has said he will be blessed, and the multitudes will be blessed through him. He could have taken it, but instead he has discernment on worldly possessions. He says, no, thank you. But there's a second king that we got to narrow in on, and his name is Melchizedek, and he also comes out to meet Abram. Melchizedek is a very, very important figure in the Bible, and this is the only place he shows up. In these just a few verses, he shows up, he meets Abram, and what does Melchizedek do but remind him of where his victory came from? You didn't do this with 318 men. You did this with the one true God. And blessed are you, Abram, by the God most high. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram responds, not for blessing, it's just trying to cling to everything, but from blessing and does something with his blessing. He shuns Sodom and he honors Melchizedek. And how does he honor Melchizedek? This is the origin of the tithe. You knew you should have skipped today. You knew it. You knew it. You knew it when you woke up. You're like, I'm skipping today. And then the Holy Spirit was like, no, nah, man, you need to go here. And we're going to end on tithing. No, but it is included. This is the origin. It wasn't just some practical thing to feed the poor or the widow or the orphan or the immigrant. It was one king, the blessed, giving, paying tribute to another king. Hebrews 7, 7 says that it is the lesser, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek was superior to Abram, and Abram responds by giving a tenth of everything he has to Melchizedek. When Abram gave 10% of all he had, he acknowledged that Melchizedek was greater than Abram was, not just as a king, but also as a priest of God most high. Abram sets the tone then for us that it is proper, right, and normative to bless those who bless you with what God has given you to steward, not own. In other words, if you don't give, you don't acknowledge this truth of inferior and superior between you and God. That's one of the unintended consequences of not being blessed by the older generation is that you don't know actually how to do this. The inferior blesses the superior with what you have. It's how, that's the biblical model of stewardship. It's the biblical model of living with God's blessing. So before, beyond all of that, we have to figure out who this Melchizedek guy is. And I just want to sit down on this for a moment. I know we're past 11 o'clock, which is always my time to go, hey, you need to start wrapping up. I'm not ready to wrap up yet. This is the only time we get Melchizedek. So just hang tight with me, please. Melchizedek is a key figure in understanding who Jesus is. I want you to just see some of this in the text, right? If you've got your Bible, Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem. 
Most people think that's the king of Jerusalem, Salem. Salem is another way to say shalom. He is the king of peace. Start, you start, have you heard of Melchizedek before? Have you heard all this? All right, well, if you've heard it, just hear it again. If you haven't heard it, hang tight. He is the king of shalom. He's the king of peace. He is a priest, king and priest. He is the priest of God most high. Before there were any priests here, he comes out of nowhere. His name means king of righteousness. Melech and Zedek, king of righteousness. This is all in Hebrews 7, by the way. I'm not making this up. He blesses Abram with a royal feast symbolized with bread and wine. David in Psalm 110 calls Melchizedek his Lord and says that the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Lord, Father, will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrew tells us that G Hebrews 6 tells us that Jesus is the high priest that was promised by David in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek order is kingly and priestly, and it is eternal. It comes without father or mother, Hebrews 7 says. Melchizedek, friends, is at the very least a type of Christ, meaning that he, he's, he's, he's pointing forward to Jesus in a significant way. And at the very most, he's Jesus in Genesis. You can believe either one. Either one are pointing to the incarnate Christ Jesus when he shows up. I like to just kind of go against whatever commentators say sometimes, so I just like, I, like, I think he's Jesus. Most people think this is a type, this is some random king that have come out of the woodwork to bless Abram, and I go, okay, well, amen, and praise God for that. But there is a significance here that points us all to Jesus. And so again, this application point, and then we'll end. What do we do with this mysterious and short introduction to such an important character? And it comes down to this. How do you live with God's blessing? Material blessing and spiritual blessing. Look at the material goods, right, that he's given you. What you have been given, will you sacrificially steward? Abram gave 10% to God's representative as a way to honor him for his protection from in Egypt, for his provision with Lot, and his potency in war. And I wonder, how do you honor God with what you have for how he has protected and provided and shown his power in your life? Have you given into the lie that there's actually no hierarchy anymore? That everything is just flat? Have we given into the lie that God is not far and high above everyone? And if we have believed that, how do we show that? with our material possessions. And then if I could go a little bit step further and go into your spiritual life. That's really what we're here about. What you have, friends, in Jesus cannot be lost. What you have, the, the, the amount of love and kindness and, and goodness that God has given you cannot be lost. So don't hang on to it in the moments of risk where you need to bless somebody else with your material possessions, not to mention your words. Don't hang tight in those moments. The Lord has brought you to that moment, in that moment, that you would risk it, perhaps sacrificially give in whatever way it may be. 
and that for you to be faithful. But I also want you to get to this point. You see, Abram discerned between achieving what God wanted to be a blessed man, to have multitudes of children, and he, he discerned what it would do to do that through worldly means with the king of Sodom and through godly means, giving sacrificially to the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Um, I, re- I heard a song this week that I haven't heard in some time. It's by Sheryl Crow, and I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, we would all leave in a hurry. Um, but if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. I've now dropped Notorious B.I.G. and Cheryl Crow. I am truly a product of Gen Z without a father, apparently. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Friends, spiritually, you, we have broadened the tent too far spiritually. I'm talking to us now. I'm not talking to everybody else. I want the people of the Grove Church, whether it be here and now or online and later, to hear, don't broaden your theological tent too far out. Don't stretch the tent far beyond the boundaries that God has put right here and right now. And all of a sudden, you've let some people into your family and into your tent and the voices of whatever podcast and whatever YouTube starts to speak into your life to start forming you spiritually that have no business forming you spiritually. It might be heresy. Abram discerned, this is no good. You've got to get out of my life, king of Sodom. Do we have the same sort of discernment in us that 1 John 4 says that we must have as Christians? I'm just going to read it, and then we'll be almost done. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Hey, everybody that smiles on TV may not be your best friend. We got to hear this now. It's seeping into our church, our churches and our church. It's on every commercial. I heard it four times last night. We cannot continue to let in every smiling face into the orthodoxy of Christianity. We must discern. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. I know this is a heavy place to land, but it's on purpose. What will we do with with what God has blessed us with spiritually, much less materially? Let us be a people that don't just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's all good, man, bring it on in. Let us be a people that discern the spirits. Let us be a people that follow in the line of Abram. Yes, we're going to fumble forward. That's what he did. If he's the father of our faith, we should be encouraged by the fact that even Abram fumbled through life. Get used to being disappointed by your spiritual leaders. It's right there on the pages. He fumbled forward, but he got it together, didn't he? God showed him the way at some point that he started living with a different disposition. And that didn't mean he just took everything he had. No, he discerned the spirits and said, you don't actually have a place here. I don't want anything from you because you'll start to brag that I got you. You, you made me rich, materially or spiritually. 
See, it is equal parts encouraging and challenging for us. But though, though we could draw many, again, many moral lessons from Abram's life, which we will, that's really not the point. It is this figure of Melchizedek, the king of shalom, of peace, the king of righteousness, the high priest of God most high, which we should draw us, truly, we should draw near to God as a result of seeing him here of him interrupting Abram's life like he interrupts our life because the true and greater Melchizedek, king of righteousness, has come and he has offered you bread and wine. And I wish we were doing communion today. He has offered you bread and wine. He has offered you communion between the king of kings and we lowly sinners. And he comes out with a royal feast and he says, will you eat at this table where the king of righteousness has come and sacrificed for you to pronounce blessing over you and your life through Jesus, that if you would believe in him, that on the altar of God, the cross of Christ, where he was crucified and shed his blood for you, we would believe in these things and we would walk in these ways and we would live a different life, not for blessing, clinging, grasping, but from it settled in. I have two dogs at the house. One's name is Charlie, the other's name is Gunner. One has one eye, the other one has no brain. <laughs> when Charlie comes near me, he's afraid. Are you going to give me your blessing, master? I'm going to pet you, and then he's probably going to pee. If you've been to my house, you know this to be true. He lives for blessing. Oh, master, don't hurt me. Gunner, on the other hand, has one eye, and I could, like, throw him across the room, although I don't. I'd like to some days, I don't. I could throw him across the room in punishment, and he would be like, oh, you want to hang out with me? You touched me. I love it. Silly, okay? For a blessing, are you going to hurt me, God? What do you want from me? You're going to use me again? What do you, you need me to do some things? I don't really feel like doing it. I, I, if you come near to me, I, I, I don't, I don't want to go near to you. From blessing, and oh my gosh, my master has drawn near to me, and I just feel, oh, there's just there's something in me that just settles in. I want to cuddle up, I want to be pet by him, and be enjoyed. All right, it's the last time I use Gunner and Charlie in any illustration. <laughs> but I do hope it helps us see the huge difference in not living for it, but living from a place of blessing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful. I pray, Lord, that we would not try to attain what can only be received. Pray that we would not try and take or manipulate what you have already given in your son, Jesus. And I pray that this people would be transformed, not clinging and grasping, but instead living open-handed generously for your purposes on the earth. Lord, you have set us free. We have no condemnation. Perhaps the greatest blessing you could ever pronounce on a people is that we are not condemned because of what your son Jesus has done for us. And so I pray that we would live lives of gratitude and generosity, kindness, and care. I pray that we would not trade in the freedom that we have in your son Jesus for some lesser form of living and some other form of slavery. We have been set free 
by your death. I pray we'd live it. May we respond in such a way that expresses that freedom in Christ's name. Amen.